Well, friends, if you have your Bible, please turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. We'll read a section from 1 Corinthians 10 and then 1 Corinthians 11. We are in a series entitled Sunday Rhythms, and in this series, we are simply looking at various and specific aspects of our order of worship. Uh, we've covered this series a few years ago, and so in this flyby, we are covering um, aspects of our worship that we uh, didn't cover before. Uh, today, we are covering the rhythm of feasting. We've covered the rhythm of approaching, the rhythm of giving. Today, we're looking at the rhythm of feasting, which is a reference to the monthly practice of the Lord's Supper. This is a central rhythm in the life of our church. It's not one that we engage in weekly, but we do engage in it regularly uh, on a monthly basis because Christ instituted the Lord's Supper as a means of grace for our spiritual benefit and our spiritual good. And yet uh, we suffer from a, a lack of understanding, uh, a poverty of knowledge when it comes to the Lord's Supper. And so today we are focusing on that. So I invite you to stand. Why do we stand? Standing is an act of worship. It shows our reverence and our respect to God as we read God's word and we receive God's word given to us. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, reading with verse 16. The cup of blessing that we bless is not a participation in the blood of Christ. The bread that we break is not a participation in the body of Christ. And then 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Please be seated, dear friends. And would you join me in a humble prayer once again? God, we ask your blessing upon your word, the preaching of it, the hearing of it, the living it out, the application of it, and ultimately, Lord, uh, our faithfulness to it. And to that end, God, edify your people. Make us into the people you desire us to be. And help us, Lord, to see you as you are, good and gracious and glorious, Lord. Thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'm not sure about you, but the way I grew up, there were always two constants at the dinner table at the Kim household. Uh, some of you may relate to this. Uh, dinner had always at least rice, a bowl of rice. It was a pretty common staple here at the Kim household. It was so uh, common that on Thanksgiving, you didn't have uh, mashed potatoes and gravy. You had mashed potato and rice. Uh, you didn't have spaghetti and meatballs. You had spaghetti and rice. Uh, so rice was always the staple, and yet uh, I lived in a very, I had a very unique situation. My parents owned a seafood business, and as a result of that, um, seafood, fish became also constant at almost every single meal. Now, both my parents worked 12 hours a day on their feet, and they would come home exhausted every night, and so dinner was often pretty simple. It was pretty predictable. You knew what dinner was going to be. Six out of seven days, it would either be rice and fish or fish and rice. I mean, it was, you really, you knew what it was going to be. Um, and it was a miracle every day because, you know, kimchi would run out, but it was as if Jesus was in our home supplying endless fish, just fish and fish and fish. And, um, but I remember this in kind of the rhythm of our family. Saturdays was always different. Saturdays was different because uh, my parents would work a full week. They would be extremely tired and just too exhausted to prepare dinner. And so Saturday, we generally ate out as a family. 
And so knowing that as a kid, eating out, loving it, I would call my mom at the store right around 5.30, right when I knew business was slowing down, and I would call and I would say, is there anything special for dinner? Is there anything special tonight? Are we eating anything special? And if she said yes, and with fingers crossed, I would pray to God, uh, let it be those three magical, blissful words, Kentucky Fried Chicken. <laughs> oh, Lord, let it be Kentucky Fried Chicken. What would a special meal be for your family? What would be eating something special for your household? What does that look like? Now, some of you are a part of families that have these kinds of traditions. Uh, and if they become traditions, they're built into the rhythm of your life. Maybe it's a birthday. You know to eat something special. Thanksgiving, you always eat something special. An anniversary, when extended family come, family from far away come, you eat something special. Now, we have that kind of tradition. We have that kind of rhythm in our spiritual family here at the church. Every first Sunday of the month, we have a special meal. We celebrate the Lord's Supper. Now, every other day of the month, you are nourished and fed the same spiritual food, the Word of God. It is sufficient, it is enough, it is good, and it sustains. But on these first Sundays of the month, we enjoy a special meal, a special feast, the Lord's Table. And so I hope it's with anticipation and great joy and excitement that we come to partake of the Lord's Supper. The question is, what makes partaking of bread and juice so special? That's what I want us to think about this morning. What happens in the rhythm of feasting? Because to our eyes, the elements seem so ordinary and plain. And yet spiritually, we know that we are approaching a very expensive and exquisite meal, a nourishment that God is offering to us. We are receiving a sacrament, a means by which God is giving us grace and he's sealing on our hearts gospel promises. And that's what makes this meal so special. And so when we monthly practice the rhythm of feasting, what is happening? Well, 1 Corinthians gives us at least three things, three things that if we remember and we concentrate on, it will encourage us, it will edify us, it will provide much joy as we partake. And the three things are these. The rhythm of feasting helps us remember the past, commune in the present, and anticipate the future. Three simple things. Remember the past, commune in the present, and anticipate in the future. And so let's begin here. Number one, we remember the past. If you look here at 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 to 25, we've read it many times. Every time we partake of the Lord's Supper, we read it. But let me read it again. The Lord Jesus, in the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And I simply want to draw your attention to those repeated words, remembrance. Do this in remembrance of me. Now, Apostle Paul here is quoting something Jesus said when he instituted the Lord's Supper on the night before he was betrayed. And in that supper, the Lord is handing out the elements and he's calling his people to remembrance. And so at the very least, we know the Lord's Supper is at least remembrance. The bread makes you remember the body of Christ broken for sinners. As we'll soon see, the bread being torn, it reminds us, we remember that our sins were so offensive that it required Christ's body be torn in your place to forgive you. Now the cup makes us remember the blood of Christ shed for sinners. As you drink the juice, you remember that your sin stained you so deeply that it required nothing short of the blood of Christ. 
to wash you clean. In this meal, you remember. You remember Jesus Christ, the eternal son of God, and his broken body and shed blood for those who receive him by faith. Now, you can't only remember Christ's love, nor can you only remember Christ's sacrifice. Because it's only in his sacrifice that you know how much you are loved. Christ loves you with a sacrificial love. And so he calls you to remembrance. Remember me. Remember what I've done. Now, here's the interesting thing. When Jesus calls his people to remembrance, what, why is he doing that? And Jesus is providing us and calling us to remember an antidote to the tendency in our hearts to forget the gospel, to forget what Christ has done. Now, in one sense, those who are Christian, you don't forget the gospel. You don't uh, one day wake up and, and are no longer able to recall its definition. You don't wake up one day and go, well, who was it who died on the cross? It was Jay, uh, Judge. You know, uh, what happened after he died? Oh my gosh, how long? Was he there for a week? I don't remember. You don't forget the facts of the gospel. But what do you forget? You forget to live in light of the gospel. You forget to live under the shade of the gospel. You forget to live under the truth of the gospel. And when this happens, when you forget, we live as if the gospel were not true. This is so apparent and true in our own lives. I mean, if I were to ask those in this room, if I were to say, hey, for those of you who are in your 20s, I want you to stand up. And if I were to ask that, those who are in the 20s know to stand up, those who aren't know they shouldn't. Nobody here has to pull out your wallet and look at your uh, driver's license and do the math and, and pull out your calculator and go, well, you know, am I in my 20s or not? Like, you have not forgotten whether you, you are in your 20s or not. And yet, looking out at many of you who aren't in your 20s, you do forget you're not in your 20s. <laughs> Don't you slip into thinking you're young and invincible. We see it all the time. We go to a retreat, you play sports without stretching. You eat spicy and greasy food late at night. You stay out watching Netflix, hospital playlist on a Thursday, even though you have work the next day. And then you wake up and you pay for it. You're sore, your stomach hurts, you're tired. And then you all say the same thing. Oh man, I forgot. I'm not in my 20s. What do you mean you forgot? Did you really forget? Well, in one sense, no, you didn't forget. You didn't forget your objective age. What you mean is I forgot and I temporarily no longer lived in the reality that I'm not 25 anymore. You see, you can know one thing but not live under its truth. And that's also true in the Christian life. We know the objective facts of the gospel. For those of you who are Christian, you don't forget Jesus died for you. Jesus loved you. Jesus uh, was raised from the dead three days after he was buried. You don't forget these things, but what do you forget? You forget to live in its truths under the protecting shade of the gospel. And so when Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me, he's not speaking out of the fear the Christians will somehow forget the gospel if they don't forget the facts of the gospel. He's addressing the tendency in the human heart to live as if the gospel were not true, to live as if the gospel didn't matter. And so when you come to partake of the Lord's Supper, as you eat, you remember you remember that you're forgiven in Christ. And so you stop living under sin's guilt, but you live under God's gracious acceptance. You remember that you've been crucified with Christ. And so you don't live as your old self, your enslaved nature to sin, but you live as a born again, new creation. You remember you are loved by Christ. And so you don't live with an orphan abandoned mentality, but you live 
under the knowledge that you are adopted and a precious child of God. This morning, some of you, you need to come to the table, but when you come, you need to take, eat, and remember. But the Lord's Supper is also so much more than just remembrance, which leads to our second point. We commune in the present. Earlier in 1 Corinthians, we just read one verse, but in chapter 10, verse, verse 16, Paul wrote this. The cup of blessing that we bless is not a participation in the blood of Christ. The bread that we break is not a participation in the body of Christ. Now, Paul here identifies the cup of blessing as Christ's blood and the broken body as Christ's body, or the broken bread as Christ's body, signifying he's talking about the Lord's Supper here. The context is pretty clear. But then he uses a very interesting word. It's a word that the ESV translates as participation, but it's actually this Greek word koinonia. And some of you may have heard it before because it's translated elsewhere in the New Testament as either fellowship or communion. And that's interesting. It's significant because what Paul is saying here is when you take of the Lord's Supper, it's far more than just remembrance. It's far more than just a memorial that there is something happening in the Lord's Supper. There's an actual spiritual communion with the living, risen Jesus Christ. In other words, when you come to the Lord's table, you are not taking communion. You are experiencing communion. It's vitally different. But I do want to clear up some possible confusion. When we say Jesus is here and that he's offering his body and his blood, that means not that Jesus is physically present in the meal, but that he is spiritually present. The bread does not uh, mystically become his body, and the blood, uh, the juice does not magically become his blood. Now, we all understand this to some degree. For those who have children uh, and love taking pictures of them in your photo uh, camera roll, it's just full of pictures. If I ask you, you know, do, do you have children and you proudly want to show me your photo, what do you do? You take out your camera, you, you pull up a picture and you say, this is my son, this is my daughter. But no one in the world will say, no, that's a digital image. When I started dating and got engaged and um, before marriage, you know, I began telling some people, why didn't anyone believe me? <laughs> I'll pull out my phone and say, well, this is her. And nobody said, no, that's a photo. You can't date a photo, Pastor Andrew. Nobody said that because you intuitively know that the photo, although it is just a picture, is far more than just a picture. We know, of course, that uh, if you say, this is my child, this is my wife, this is my husband, these are my parents, you truly mean it, but you don't literally mean it. In the same way, you know, the bread and the cup, Jesus is saying, this is my body, my blood, but he's not saying literally, this is becoming my body and my blood. But he is also saying, this is my body and blood. So what could he be meaning? And Jesus means to partake of these elements is to partake of him spiritually that this meal is a heavenly act where by faith we receive Christ and we truly commune with him, that he is spiritually present in the meal. And so the meal gives us this incredible assurance that Christ is with us. He is for us, not in, in the past, not still stuck on the cross on Calvary's Hill, but with you now. And for those who believe with faith, he communes with you and you with him. And in such a way, he communicates something to us. He shows us his affections. Now, how do you show affections to those you love? You hug them, you hold them, you kiss them. 
but you don't merely do the action or the signs, then you say to them, I love you. Why? Because we understand words and signs must go together. Words and signs are necessary because words interpret the sign. Signs reinforce the words. That's what's happening in the Lord's Supper. God is speaking to his people. I love you. I forgive you. And I adopt you. But then receiving the elements, we receive the signs, the tangible signs that God loves us, that God forgives us, and that God adopts us. His words interpret the sign of the Lord's Supper and the signs reinforce the words. And so when you and I, we hear the gospel preached in words, and then we come and we partake of the bread and the cup, we are receiving the signs. We are receiving the gospel. We are receiving spiritually the benefits of Christ. But more, we are receiving Christ. Christ himself. The theologian Herman Bavin years ago wrote these words. He not only gave himself for his own, he also gives himself to his own. That in the past, Christ gave himself for us, but in the present, Christ gives himself to us. Here in this meal, he offers himself to you again. He is at the table. He is the feast. He is the host meaning that no matter how many times you've uh, rejected him, ignored him, ran from him, failed him, you're coming in this door as a weak, broken, failed sinner. But when you come before the Lord in faith, it doesn't matter. Christ meets you again. And each time, again and again, with abundant grace and mercy. You remember that passage in Rome, uh, Revelation chapter 3, verse 20? It's, it's usually... Um, taken out of context and used as an evangelistic text. But it's actually uh, Revelation 3, those seven letters to the churches. They're written to Christians. They're written to the churches. And in Revelation chapter 3, the letter to the church in Laodicea, Jesus says this, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. Now, the church in Laodicea, if you remember, is that church that is lukewarm Christians. Jesus said, you're neither hot nor cold. You're lukewarm, so I'm going to spit you out. And yet to these half-hearted Christians, Jesus says, I will dine with you. Friends, Jesus is willing to dine with you at the Lord's table today. He's not inviting you first to clean up yourself, to make yourself presentable. Did you call ahead and make a reservation? No, there are no conditions to come to him except faith. So Jesus welcomes at the table strong and weak alike. And he makes special room for those struggling, for those who are weary, those who are lost. If this is you in this room and you are a Christian, come and be nourished at the table of Jesus. Take and eat and commune. But there's a third thing that the Lord's Supper does. And in it, we anticipate the future. Anticipate the future. Now, in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 26, Paul writes these words. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Now, Paul here puts a spin on the Lord's Supper because he adds a future orientation to it. He says it's not simply remembering the past or communing with Christ in the present. It's actually making you look ahead. It's making you look forward. The whole Lord's Supper is done in this great hope of Christ's return when he comes again because this feast that we are celebrating is actually pointing to another one yet to come. That the Lord's death is not the end. The Lord's death is merely the beginning. 
When Christ returns, he will claim his people for himself. And Revelation 19.9 promises us, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. That this table will give way to another table, to a final feast. And this is why Paul reminds us that when we eat this bread and we drink the cup, we do it until he comes. Until he comes, because once he comes, there is no more need for the sign. Every participation in this meal, therefore, on this side of eternity, on earth, is a rehearsal of the final gathering, the king's table. See, on your own, you can never approach the table. You can never afford a meal this expensive. It's too grand. It's too royal. It's too luxurious for you. At best, you could wash the dishes in the back kitchen. But even for that role, you are greatly unqualified. And yet, by God's grace, you are not only invited to the ceremony, you are invited to stay for the feast. Even at the feast, you're not eating the scraps that are left over, but you're eating portions that are served from the king's table itself, served to you by the king himself. And this, my friends, is not because you are an invited guest. You are his chosen bride that he is committing and covenanting to. The reason that we proclaim Lord's death until he comes is because once he comes, we'll have no more need for the supper. It'll give way to the final feast awaiting you in heaven where Christ, your groom, waits for you. And in this way, the best way to think about the Lord's supper is kind of like wedding tasting. When Eunice and I were planning our wedding, um, I wasn't very enthusiastic about it. I knew it would take a lot of time and it was stressful during COVID. Uh, but there was one thing I was really excited for, uh, one thing that I really looked forward to, and that was uh, the day of the wedding tasting. Uh, if you're not familiar with a uh, wedding tasting, basically it's the best day of your life, um, <laughs> where the, the wedding venue that's, that's hosting you, that you're having it at, they will invite you out and pretty much everything on their menu, they will serve you everything that's on their menu. So you can choose, you know, the cocktail hour food and the entrees. You, they literally serve you everything that they can. I mean, it's so good. I mean, marriage is good too, but, but this <laughs> is so good. And the only planning you have to do is make sure you wear stretchy pants. Because, you know, if your pants aren't stretched out, you're, you did it wrong. Um, and so the whole evening you are eating this food, you're sampling this food, but it is always in light of a future feast to come. The purpose of that meal is not to feed you in that moment. The purpose is to prepare you for the wedding day to come. And that's exactly what the Lord's Supper is doing. It's pointing forward. It's making you hunger for another meal. It's giving you a taste of the feast you will one day enjoy for eternity. But let me tell you the best part of this day. It wasn't just that the food was so good. Hallelujah, it was. But it was this. Because of COVID and the increasing restrictions, uh, Eunice and I had to uh, cancel our um, reservation at this venue simply because, you know, their numbers were getting way too small and, and it was, uh, we couldn't have it there. But after we canceled, uh, we had put in a deposit and everything, they fully refunded everything that we had given, all of it. Meaning that this glorious wedding tasting meal that we ate the six of us, that I didn't eat for five people. I just met my parents came and Eunice's parents were there. The six of us ate for free. 
Now, it would be naive to assume that we really ate for free. It was free to us, but the venue paid the cost. The venue paid for the chef to show up. The venue paid for the space to set up. The venue paid for the servers. The venue paid for the ingredients. The venue ate the cost so that we could eat the food. That's what the Lord's Supper is. Christ paid the cost so you can eat the food. And you are invited to come and take this meal with anticipation in the great feast to come. And you're charged nothing. You pay nothing. You bring nothing except your spiritual appetite that Christ promises that he will nourish and satisfy. And so when you partake of this meal, you listen quietly enough and you will hear the wedding bells chiming, signaling that wedding feast is to come. So close your eyes when you take it and imagine yourself there that final day, finally and fully united to Jesus Christ, your groom, and him making you beautiful and radiant. This meal helps you look ahead. You know, we're going to close now, but let me just close with three exhortations in summary. You know, some of you, when you come and partake of this supper, you need to fix your eyes on the past. You need to remember. You need to think again at Calvary's Hill. And in the Lord's Supper, you need to remember the price of your sin, the cost of redemption, and the wonderful payment that Jesus made for you as a sign of his love. Others of you need to come and you need to know that Jesus isn't stuck on the cross on Golgotha 2,000 years ago, that he is present here with you now. That you think you're dirty and you're ashamed. You think you're at the cafeteria eating at a table all by yourself. But the King of Kings is present with you. And that you feed on him and with him. And some of you are so bogged down by the realities of difficulties and trials and struggles and doubts and questions and circumstances that all you can see is now, but you need to eat the supper and look ahead. And remember, there is a feast to come in which the king will welcome you home. And so endure and persevere for the marriage supper of the lamb is coming. So dear friends, Cornerstone, are we eating something special today? Yes. Yes, we are. So come and feast. Would you bow down and pray with me?